Hey, everybody. Now, be careful if you're a visitor and you find this sermon um, mercifully short, because there's actually two today. We split it up into two parts that we could practice in the middle. If you're new this week, um, we're doing a four-week series on worship, of, the, of which this is the third Sunday. And what I want to talk about this morning is three things. One, that worship is for remembering. And then in the second part, that um, we have to be a people disciplined in, the ex- in being expressive in worship and in celebration. Okay? And there it is. So worship is designed— when I say worship, I'm not talking about the most general definition. I'm talking about the thing we do when we get together on Sunday morning and things like it similar in the life of the, of the local church. That's, when I say worship in this context, for this sermon, that's what I mean. Worship helps us think, feel, and believe— rightly and truthfully by helping us remember. Worship is designed to help us remember. Uh, one ser- one uh, passage in the Bible you may not have had as the passage for a sermon in your church life is this one in Numbers 15, 37 to 41. Uh, Numbers 15, 37 to 40, 15, 37, 41, you say yes. Um, let's read it together. Um, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant I'll read it to you. You can read If you want to read it, you can. You just don't have to. If you want to, go ahead. It's fine. Um, Throughout the generations um, to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You've heard a lot on that one, haven't you? Now, what, that, is a, that is a commandment to a certain kind of creature, right? That is a commandment to a forgetful kind of creature, Right? That you have to say, okay, listen, in addition to all the other things I just commanded you to do to remember me, God says to these folks, he's like, I want you to actually make these little dangly tassel thingies, right? And attach them to all of your clothing and make sure there is a blue thread in it. And everybody's going to have them. So you can see it on yours. You can see it on everybody else's. And all of you are going to have one blue thread on you all the time simply to remember that you belong to God. You're all going to do that for all the generations to come. All the way down the line, you're going to do that so that you will remember God. Now listen, if you have to tell somebody that, they're forgetful. And one of the things that sometimes we don't like to recognize is that we are very much like the Old Testament saints. We're extraordinarily forgetful people. We're forgetful creatures. We don't remember the right things, and we don't remember them in the right proportions and in the right order of importance. And we, we forget—and part of the reason why we forget is really understandable. But we, it's something that we really have to be cognizant of. For example, we constantly forget what is for what we see, right? He says, why are you supposed to wear the tassel in the passage? So that you won't prostitute yourselves to what? The things right in front of you, right? What you're— what your heart's desire and what you see. That is, you're going to have internal, inordinate passions. You're going to see stuff that you're going to want. God is not going to be visible at the moment. 
and going to seem more removed. And if you don't remember that God is God, you're just going to give yourself for whatever you think that stuff can give you, to whatever you desire, and to whatever you desire that you see. Because you're going to forget. We're going to forget what is for what we see, and so we're going to forget God, which is kind of a bad thing. We're going to forget what's right for what we we want, which is idolatry. And we're going to forget the real past for flattering interpretations for ourselves. And that is, we're going to forget our sin, we're going to forget our need for grace. Because we're going to forget our sin and our infirmity, because we're going to try to remember that we are like we would like to think we are. Now, you might find that a little bit preposterous, but um, there's been a lot of new brain science over the last 20 years. There's some Christians that are very uncomfortable with it, but I find it extremely helpful because essentially what brain scientists are finding out is that we're exactly like the Bible says we are, which is, which is always helpful. Not the reason necessarily I believe the Bible, but it's very helpful. And that is that what we're finding about how human brains work is we are terrible rememberers. And our memories are essentially interpretations that self-justify our own existence and that confirm the things we already believe. That's essentially how our memory works. And that's how our thinking works. And so the idea that we would be the kind of people that would forget what is true because of what's right in front of us that we would do it, and we would do it on the basis partly on the fact that we want to think we're fabulous rather than remember history as it actually happened in our lives, and therefore not only forget God, but remember ourselves too much and forget what we actually need and who God actually is. Another passage in Scripture you may not have heard a lot of sermons about is this one in Numbers 11, 4 to 6. The rabble in the first verse is the Israelites not being the way Israelites are supposed to be. And so listen to this passage. The rabble with them began to crave other foods, meaning not the manna, this, this bread-like food that God had given them. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite, and we never see anything but this manna. Now think about—think about— I mean, okay, that's some nasty complaining, but think about what that says about their memory. If you know anything about the biblical story of the Israelites, they were enslaved, worked brutally beyond belief, and at the time of their escape, their children were being systematically massacred. Every single male child that was being born had to be killed. Every one. What was so different about Moses was that Moses survived, and he was 80 by this time. So for 80 years, the, is, the Israelites, there had been this long history of them being massacred and destroyed under a slavery system meant to profit the Egyptians and destroy the Jews. And yet, this is what they remember. Why? Because they were in the desert, and they were hungry, and that's what was right in front of them. That's all. They're humans. Right? Are you an anti-Semite? You'd like to believe you're not, right? Do you hate Jews? Do you think you're fundamentally better than Jews? Most of us would be like, no, Nick, I don't think that. Right? We're not anti-Semites. Well, then, these aren't stupid Jews. These are human beings. They're just like you. This is what human beings do. They forget truths, things that are well-established facts, because of what's right in front of them, because we are profoundly self-justifying, bad-remembering creatures. Now, if you believe that— which I think would be believing in reality, what that means is we have to remember that we are reactively, we reactively 
remember things in order to justify ourselves. We're reactive rememberers. And if we don't want to be that person, if we want to be the kind of people who live beautifully, believe what's true, we don't have to just try to have good logic. It's a lot bigger than that. We have to find a way to remember what is true. And because of what and who we are, this is going to have to be a repetitive process. Because we're constantly forgetting. Like if you, like some people are like, why do we have to go to church every week? Look, seven days is on the outside of how long a human can remember reality, okay? It's on the outside. It's not like, well, you know, people can remember reality from seven to 64 days, but let's have church every week. No. The average human being remembers reality for about 30 minutes, okay? About 30, and then up to seven days, right? And so we get together every seven For most of the history of the church, do you know how often the church got together? Every day. Every day. Every day. And, you know, you know, people get kind of angry if we have, like, something on Wednesday night we want you to come, you know? And we have cars, right? But that's just—and the, and the reason for that wasn't that we had to get all this more teaching, right? Because you don't remember what I've taught for the last two months, right? Go back. All the teaching under the last two months, right? I like to think my sermons are very important. How much do you remember? Very little, right? Why? Well, some, maybe some. But part—so why do you keep coming? We get overtaught. Well, part of it is because— the idea is, is that something still happens every time. Whatever you remember, hopefully every time when we worship God, when we listen to preaching, when we do these ordinances of remembrance, something happens where we go, oh yeah, oh yeah, right, right. God is God. I'm this person. He does this for me. This is what I need from him. This is what he created us to be. This is why I belong to this. Oh yeah, right. I was forgetting that. And that's one of the reasons why when we, it's, it's some people want like a church 12-week course, right? Well, can I go for like 12 weeks and then I've kind of got church? It doesn't work that way because that's not the kind of creature we are. And the most obvious of these actions of remembrance obviously is what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, where Jesus gave the bread and the wine and he says, hey, you guys do this together to remember what I've done for you, right? And if you look in Luke's gospel, is the only gospel of the four where, where it records Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But when Paul talks about this in the book of 1 Corinthians, he, he puts it twice. And then he, he interprets what he means by this in this last verse, in verse 26, where he says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, meaning when we take communion together, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death. When did that happen? In the past, right? You do it when? Right now, until he comes. Right? You see what he's saying? He's saying we're rem- you're going to take some, something we have to remember for the present connected to the hope we have in the future. And you've got to do this. Do this over and over and over again. And do this to remember. But you see, this is not the only thing we do to remember. Everything that we do in worship, if it had—a lot of it has other purposes too. But if everything we did when we got together for worship had no other purpose than simply to help us remember, it would still be totally worth it. What do you think we're doing when we sing? We're, well, God deserves worship. We're worshiping God. But what do you think is supposed to happen with us? We're supposed to remember that God is God, what God is like, what God has done for us, who we really are, how we need him. Right? Why do we do preaching? Why, right? Why do we do that? Well, it's, it's to get teaching and to understand scripture better, and under, but it's also to remember and to have all the thing, all the self-interpretations that are coming in and clouding up our memory with problems, it's to come in and clear that stuff away so we can remember more clearly. 
And it's the same reason we have these things that we call ordinances, things Jesus ordered us to do, baptism and communion, because we're supposed to use them to maximize how God can help us remember. And if you realize that, then you can believe that you're not a good remember, and you can embrace a lifestyle that has remembering in it. Like, why do you pray? Like, if you pray for your meals, why do you do that? Well, you know, we pray the blessing, Nick. What does that even mean? Do you even know what that means? What does that mean? That's like the third most important thing to do, right? The first most important thing to do is to celebrate that God gave you something to eat. He didn't have to. Plenty of things could have gone wrong. But you have something to eat. That's something to be celebrated. Two, it's to be thankful and to remember God regularly. So every night if you, you pray, it's just, if, if nothing more than to remember God is God. And then three, you can say, God, please bless this. Make it special somehow. But the whole point is to remember, why, would, why did Christians for centuries practice morning and evening prayers? Why can't you just pray all at once? You see, it's all based on memory. Christians have understood the kind of creatures we are and that we need these things functioning in our life if we're going to remember. So let's practice. Let's practice. Let's do communion together. If you're a believer, it doesn't matter if you've had a good week. That, this isn't about—this isn't about that. This is about, do you believe in and are you ready to remember that Jesus, fully God, became man, lived beautifully and perfectly, the, the humanity you were supposed to be, and he died on your behalf, was buried, rose again, through faith has been united with you so that your being is inseparable from his and his righteousness covers you. And therefore, you can receive God's Spirit. You can belong to Him forever. You can be rightly related to reality. You can be part of His eternal kingdom and His united family. That's what this is for, to remember. So as the worship team comes up and we pass these elements out, just take a piece of bread and a cup and we'll celebrate it together at the end of this song, okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be a people who learn how to be people who remember. We know that our memory leaks, and so we have calendars and all kinds of places where we write stuff down because we know that we're prone to forget, but sometimes we just think we forget the little things, and we don't realize that actually, much worse than that, we forget the most important things. And so, Father, help us become the kind of people who exert faith in such a way as to constantly remember what's most important, namely you, what you've done for us, and how that changes everything. Help us do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Christ is risen from the dead To plead over death by death Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Christ is risen from the dead We are one with Him again Come awake, come awake Come and rise up from the grave Beneath the weight of all our sin You bow to none but do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, oh, it's such a tragedy that I'm going to die and I'm going to be dead and you please remember me when I'm gone. No, he said, this is my body 
which is broken for you. You take it in remembrance of me. That is, remembering what I did for you. Let's receive it together. The Jews in the Old Testament were forbidden from drinking blood because God said in the Torah, a person's life is in their blood. And so he, he wanted blood to represent our very life. And so when Jesus said, this is, this is the cup of my blood given for you, that is a representation of his very life being poured out so that we could have life. He said, do this in remembrance of me. God, please help us to be a people of memory and help it to be centered and in, in most rooted at this ordinance that you've given us. Help us to adore it, not as a thing in and of itself, but as a signpost in the life of the church, constantly bringing us back to the simple truth that Christ is risen from the dead, has destroyed death, has made a way to you, that has been accomplished, that we are not accomplishing, but that has been accomplished, that we are free from the guilt of sin. Not just the guilt of our sins, but from the guilt of the sin that is still in us and bothering us and that we are warring against. And that you are present, helping us have victory over it, awaiting final salvation. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ready for round two? This is a good time to run if you hate what's going on. I'm just kidding. So, I kind of made it so you can't leave though, didn't I? Sorry. Okay, so one of the things that we do um, at one of our the staff meetings that we have is we have um, the first part of our meeting is why I work here. Stories. People can share why I work here stories because we find that if we only know the good stuff that's happening in the body of Christ at High Point— that's in our departments, we actually get robbed of a whole lot of excitement that otherwise we would have. And so um, after I heard about this other church doing it, I felt like we should do this. And it took discipline to do, but it's also one of our favorite things to do. I, can, I can't get—if we're in a rush, I can't not do this now in staff meetings. People are too attached to it. And that's partly because w- once, you, once you celebrate things, it's really addictive. It's fun to be happy. And there are disciplines of happiness that you can be part of, and they're great. And it's not just that we should be celebrating people and that we should be expressive in that celebration just because, you know, that's nice or it'll make us happy. We have to. It's, it's right. It's true. For example, I don't know if you remember um, in Luke 15, there's, there's these three stories in Luke 15. One about a guy who loses a sheep, and then he leaves the 99 to go find the sheep, and, and then he comes back, and then he, the, another person loses a coin, and she digs around her whole house till she finds it. Then one guy who loses his son, right? And, and, and each story ends the same way. They go out to the neighbors and say, hey, come and celebrate with me because I, lo- I found my lost sheep. And the woman goes and annoys all her neighbors, come and celebrate with me because I found my lost coin. And then the, the father, when the lost son comes back, he throws this huge party for him. Bigger than most others, apparently, by the, by the context. 
And the older brother, who, he's not happy about this, okay? He just, he does not want to celebrate. He's not into celebrating. And ultimately, he's the only guy on the farm who doesn't come in to celebrate. And so finally, the father, who is the only certainly emotionally healthy person in the whole story, who represents God, comes out to the older brother, and the older brother's angry. And here's what the father says to him. He says, son, we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. You see the, you see the idea there? The idea is, when something is truly great, you have to celebrate and be glad. You have to. To not do it is wrong. It must be. Right? And one of the things that I think we need to recognize is that to not celebrate— is a denial of reality. It's to fail to remember. And when we celebrate, to not be expressive in celebrating is to deny the celebration and therefore deny the reality. We are meant to be a celebrating and expressively celebrating people. Um, Because celebration is the necessary and natural response when something good happens, especially when God does it. So I have an example of this for you. Last week, um, a couple of our elders, one of the other things that was in the year-end gift was in our church planning section. And one of it was a gift that we gave to another church um, who uh, they they had done all this work to get in this new building and to build it. They turned this warehouse into a church. It's really cool. And they spent every dime that they had just getting past inspection. And so they had this new church. It's in a warehouse. They still have concrete floors, and their worship music is really loud. And I was—I had lunch with the pastor several months ago, and he's like, man, man, I just wish we could put carpet in there to really make it look done. But, you know, he's like, it's 3500 bucks, and it might as well be 35000 I just have no idea when we'll be able to raise it. So we, I secretly came back, we raised the money, and we had two elders go there and give it to them last week. And I have the video. So let's watch it. You all remember last year, we did a joint service uh, at Highport Church. We had a wonderful time. And Pastor Nick Gibson and myself maintain a friendship. We don't talk much, but we text often. And you don't get to talk much to, to Pastor Gibson, you just got to text him. And, uh, but we have maintained a great fellowship, and he called me the other day, and uh, he could not be here, but uh, sent a couple of the elders from their church uh, to uh, share something with us. So receive them with a hearty praise the Lord.
that you have here in this church. So, Pastor Rayford, just marvelous work that God's doing here, and we are honored to be part of it. Uh, part of the vision at High Point is to reach out to uh, brother and sister churches by faith, hope, and love to help you complete and start the work that God is, uh, is doing in your midst. So we took an offering at High Point, and we want to give you uh, our love to help you. It feels good to celebrate a little bit, doesn't it? It's not bad. So if that's true, if you've got to celebrate when things are good, things are true, if things are beautiful, we should celebrate. We should admire them. We should express that. And sometimes we have to be disciplined about it. But if that's true, then we've got to recognize—sorry, we have got to be a people who are growing in our expressiveness and in the discipline of celebration. We've got to be that. That's got to be important to us. We've got to care about that. So I want to talk about those two things real quick. One is, we've got to be a people growing in expressiveness. We've got to be a people growing in expressiveness. Fifty-six times in the Psalms it says, to sing to God who is fantastic. Thirty-six times it says, rejoice, right? Psalm 32, 11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing all you, you who are upright in heart. Psalm 40, 16, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And may those who love your salvation always say, the Lord be exalted. The translation to the Lord be exalted into non-religious language is God is a huge deal. 
Now, there's always a claim that accompanies this, this claim, and that is, Nick, don't you know that expressiveness is personally and culturally relative? Don't you know that? And the answer is, yes, I know that. I experience it every Sunday morning here at High Point Church. And um, it is, it's true. There, listen, there's, there, listen, there's a word that I'm going to say that starts with S, and I want you to pay attention to it. It's a four-letter word that starts with S, but you'll approve of it. There is some relativity to expressiveness. There is some relativity to expressiveness. That's true. There is some relativity to expressiveness. But there's only so much relativity to expressiveness. Let me give you an example of this. When um, I, I grew up um, in a family in which hugging was not an event, okay? So there was very little hugging. In fact, in all the years, my dad was a wonderful man, very loving father. I could prove to you in a hundred different ways how much my father loved me. I could not provide any evidence that he ever hugged me, though. In, from my own memory. I remember getting whooped, but that's always more memorable anyway. <laughs> and so when I, I married my wife, um, this was a problem because my wife was raised by hippies. And so <laughs> this is a family that's very expressive. Um, one, one of her parents came from a very expressive family. One of them came from a very non-expressive family and very much rebelled against that. And so they're both very expressive people. In fact, I still to this day believe that when my father-in-law hugs me, the way he does it is he hugs me until he feels me try to let go, and then he counts down from nine. <laughs> oh, you tried to let go of me, Nick. Nine, eight, seven. Oh, you tried to let go again? Nine, eight, eight. So I marry Alexi, and she comes into the family, and instead of just like accepting me for who I am in my family, she's like, this is terrible. You people are, are hug deficient. This is not, this is not a problem. This is like, this is not like, oh, I didn't drink my orange juice today. This is scurvy. I mean, like, this is a problem. And you p- people have a problem. So, and so she just started hugging people in my house and just see what happened. And that was interesting. But, but you know, there was a, there was a point where I had to, I had to consider that argument, right? That's a claim. Am I hug deficient, right? And here's what I realized. Yes. Yes. The fact, the fact was that the, the, the level to which I was comfortable showing human physical non-sexual affection through hugging was deficient. I was uncomfortable. It was something that most people in my life were going to need, right? Part of expressiveness is not just what I like, but what others need. And what others need was for me to express my love. I was going to have these things called children eventually. And they were going to need me to emote with them, Right? They were, I'm gonna, it's going to have to be expressive. I was going to have to hug them. I was going to, they were going to be, I didn't know at that point I was going to be a, a pastor for sure. But I, what I found since I became a pastor is there's lots of people that did not grow up like me. And they like expressiveness and they want to be hugged. And they want me to like make facial expressions like I have feelings when they talk to me about theirs. And these sorts of things. And so I had to learn like to be more expressive. Now I was always loud because my mom was Italian. But the whole like being okay, and I got like, like 15 people hugged me after the last service. But, but like, what you, ha- what you have to realize is it's one thing to say there's relativity to expressiveness. It's another thing not to actually think through what's appropriate. Cultures are both good and bad, right? The reason one culture may be light on physical expressiveness may be because it's high on discipline or something else, but that doesn't mean it's right, and that doesn't mean that's what's rightly balanced. That doesn't mean what showing love really is. And so therefore, one of the things we have to think about is, okay, this is what I am prone to, but what should I be? 
And that's something that we have to recognize, because listen, if we're Christians, we believe we're sinners— it's very likely we could be sinners in the area of expressiveness. Now, there's two tests that you can do for this. One, you already know what it is, right? The football test. This is the test to see whether or not you're an expressiveness hypocrite. And that is, do you get more excited at a football game than when you worship Jesus, right? Jesus is intrinsically more important, and so, and more beautiful, and more great, and more exciting. And so, therefore, if you get more excited at a football game— Now, if you watch football games, and your response is, oh, they got a touchdown— awesome. That's good. That's good. And you really are a fan. Like, you have three fantasy football teams, but that's still your reaction. And then you come to church, and you're like, Jesus, you're awesome. (laughs) At least you're not a hypocrite. That's good, right? That's good. But that's a test you can use to kind of gauge that. The second one is what I call the humiliation test, and that is, what makes for a good apology, right? What makes for a good apology is when you get to the end of the apology, and you feel a little humiliated. That's good. You should feel a little humiliated, right? Why? Well, because the whole reason you have to apologize is because you sinned. The reason you sinned was because of pride. You thought you were big enough that you could do whatever you did to that other person, and it's probably good that you be humiliated because you have to become humble, and humiliation is a good road to that. And so it's good. You really should feel—if you did what you were supposed to do when you get done with the apology, you should feel a little humiliated. That's a pretty good internal test for whether or not you really apologized rather than just handled the situation so we could move forward. I'm sorry if you were offended that, right? So that's, I think that's also true of worship. Because when we think about ourselves and our own personal dignity, it's very fast from where that goes to, I'm a disciplined person for the good of others, to, to I'm a disciplined, strong person, and I'm important, and I'm— Right? Like, you've—haven't you watched, like, the, like, the British period pieces that, like, make fun of, like, Victorian British culture where, like, all the British people are so uptight and they're—and then you find out in the story, it's really all about them and it's not because they're really just disciplined people and then some woman saves the day, right? Like, that's the storyline. And the, the reason is because people naturally connect with those kinds of novels. When people get sort of—really—and then they get self-important. That happens. Pride, pride takes discipline and turns it emotionally into self-importance. And what that does is it causes us to be less expressive in ways that are completely open and honest. And so if we were very expressive and open and honest and in that sense vulnerable, it would feel humiliating to us emotionally if pride had entered in. Well, let me just let you in on a secret. Pride has entered in. Pride has entered in for all of us. So therefore, if we really were to express ourselves in an an open, loving, and expressive way towards God, the emotion that will probably come in at some point is a a tinge of humiliation, a feeling of humiliation, or fear, or something. And if you've got—if you don't have that feeling, you should every once in a while. That should should come in a little bit. If if it's happening, there should be some of that sort of self-humiliation. Here's a passage that people like I'm not going to read the whole thing because I promised I'd preach shorter today. And it's about David bringing the ark back to Israel. And at the end of it, David sort of tells off his wife. And so this is biblical warrant for husbands telling off their wives. Um, That's not true. I'm just—that's a joke. It's a joke. (laughs) Jokes don't have to be funny. And um, so this is—this is what he says to her. because she was—she's like, aren't you an idiot, right? So in verse 20, she says, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today by disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, um, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me to rule over the Lord's people Israel. 
I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. You see the, the argument of the tell-off? A, I am not going to apologize for expressing my love for God. B, people who don't love him very much will despise me for it, and my level of dignity in their eyes will go down. But people who actually are willing to celebrate Jesus and who love him, my, my dignity in their eyes will rise. They will respect me more because they see me loving God fully, openly, and with as much humility as I can find in my prideful heart. He's, he's like, I'm not going to apologize for that. And I am happy to be more humiliated personally to express myself fully and lovingly towards God. We have to be growing as an expressive people. But the other thing we have to recognize is that to really be a people of expressive celebration, we have to be disciplined about it. And the reason why that is, is because there are three kinds of things that need to be celebrated. Occurrences, things that just happen. Repetitions, things that like happen over and over and over again, pretty repetitively, but they still happen. And third is things that are just constant. They're just always true, right? And the thing that we naturally all celebrate is the first one, right? Occurrences. Your team wins a playoff game. The Menards flyer comes, and there's a big sale on tools. I mean, something happens that's exciting, and it's an occurrence, and you want to celebrate it. And so, look, I'm a celebrating expressive person. Here's the problem. That's less than half of what we should be celebrating. Most of the things that really intrinsically deserve celebration, especially through worship, are things that are recurrent and repetitive, and things that are constant. And those are the things so easy to ignore. For example— My wife and I have been married for almost 13 years. So if you do the math on that, my wife and I have fairly, well, very traditional gender roles. Um, And so that means that she has now done the laundry for me 676 weeks. Okay? How many times have I said, baby, man, that laundry this week, awesome. 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 Right? Half dozen, maybe? Maybe? Right? Because the thing, when things are repetitive, they just, you, they just become invisible, right? Like, somebody cleaned the sanctuary this week. Did you even think about that? Just, what, why? Because somebody does it every week, right? Right, you didn't slip coming in. Somebody cleaned the walk, right? Did you think about that? Man, this walk is awesome. It's awesome, right? No, right? You'd, you probably didn't do that. But, that. but it happened, right? Because some of the most— most noble things that people do are unseen, constant, and repetitive things. That's why we have a Mother's Day. Why do we have a Mother's Day? Are mothers better than fathers? I don't know. (laughs) But one of the reasons we ought to have a Mother's Day, even though I hate preaching on Mother's Day, is because—we should make it a Tuesday. I'm just kidding. Sorry. The reason we have a Mother's Day is—why? Because mothers do very repetitive tasks. And the nobility of their calling is repetitive. And so what do we do? We forget about it. So what should we celebrate? That, that's why we have a secretary's day too, right? So anybody, that's why we don't celebrate me. Because everybody, everybody, I'm an occurrence every week, right? But other people, they're not. And so we've got to celebrate things repetitively. That's why sometimes we have things that we do like praying at meals, having morning and evening prayers. You write yourself little notes. You know, you can, you can like put— and I, somebody told me, I was like, you know, I really should send my wife these text messages to just encourage her. And somebody's like, you can actually schedule those in Google? <laughs> I was like— <laughs> But also the thing, the thing that most deserves 
our celebration is the great constant of reality, God. God is equally deserving of our celebration every single moment. It's just like a beating heart all the time. He's a constant. His word is a constant. What Christ has done is a constant for us. And it's the, the constants are the things we are most likely to forget. About. Therefore, celebration has to be a discipline. Because if we only celebrate the occurrences, we will be such shallow people. And when we recognize that, you can begin to see how everything that we do together when we get together has that, bears that in mind. It's supposed to be an opportunity to remember and to celebrate expressively what we will constantly forget and what we forget to celebrate because what God often does is repetitive and constant, like real nobility in most of our lives. If you're going to be an honorable, good, and true person who lives well, what are you going to do? You're going to do your God-given role over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And when we learn to appreciate the one who really truly deserves our praise and appreciation, we might actually learn to love each other. It's possible. It's possible. So let's practice. I want to invite up Anna Marie— um, Anna Marie um, actually got baptized last service. She gave this testimony, got baptized last service. So what we're going to do is she's going to give her testimony, and then we're going to watch a video of her baptism. And then we're going to have an opportunity to be expressively celebratory. Okay? Um, because even though for her— Tony, I've got to use this. Sorry. Let's just—can we just use his, his mic? Awesome. Um, even though this is a one-time gig for her, there will be more baptisms. But it does not matter how many baptisms there are that we will ever do. They will all be causes for us to enormously celebrate because God has changed a life. Did I turn this on? Awesome. You remembered I'm not five foot ten this time. My parents come from a very divergent religious background. My father is an English Protestant. My mother is a French Roman Catholic. I was born and raised in Canada. Nick wanted me to give a bad French-Canadian joke, so I'll tell you that in my house, buffet, me, buffet is French for get up and get it yourself. I was raised in my mother's faith, not just attending a church, but the local diocese cathedral. Unlike my older brother, I was actively interested in spiritual activities, often insisting on attending church, even on weeks my mother would have liked to skip. I was involved in the church youth choir and youth group activities. I was as desperate for a relationship with God as I was to get away from my house. Unbeknownst to my family, my father was physically abusing me. The secret and shame was an emotional strain I tried to balance with my religious beliefs with mixed results. I believed as a youth that if I prayed long enough and hard enough, God would answer. There were times when my father would hit me and shake me that I would pray God would take me to heaven because no one there would hurt me. When I was around 16... I decided to leave home to escape the ongoing abuse. At the time, I opted to move in with my boyfriend, who shortly after proposed. Around the same time, I was diagnosed with a chronic disease that would mean dealing with daily pain and exhaustion for the rest of my life. I didn't understand. Why was God punishing me? I reached out to the source of much of my comfort, the church, only to find an unpleasant surprise. 
Though we were not sexually active, my church decried this move and ejected me from all youth activities, turning its back on me. My youth pastor even went so far as to suggest I would be better off moving back home, knowing full well this would put me back in a position to be abused, despite the fact my father had, in no uncertain terms, made it clear to everyone once I left I would not be welcome back. When you're 16, the church turning its back on you looks a lot like God turning its back on you. I spent a lot of time angry at God and religion and lived a secular life with few apologies. I chose not to care about whether I was living a good life. While I wasn't criminal, I was definitely immoral. I stopped caring what people thought about me. I had sexual relationships with people of both genders, sometimes at the same moment. I had a long-term relationship with a woman who discovered she was pregnant with her ex-boyfriend's child not long after we started dating. I bounced around the country with no real roots. I felt that because I worked hard, often holding down two or three jobs to make ends meet, it meant I could play hard too. After breaking off a relationship with a military boyfriend who had taken me to three different provinces, I found myself with no money, no friends, and little family connection. I was homeless, crushing on couches and in spare bedrooms while I saved up for a tiny apartment. I was too proud to ask for help. I eventually married and found a steady girlfriend and made a home with both together. Neither relationship was without problems, but I was always raised to believe you only get one you only get married once, and I was committed to making it work. My partners, neither of which were raised nor practiced any religion, did not feel the same. In my late twenties I came to struggle with a lot of life questions, feeling there was an empty part of my life and felt lost as to how to fill it. Debt was crushing me, I was struggling to find a job, and my husband walked out on me, giving up completely on our relationship. When I was truly at my lowest, Jesus helped pick me up. His presence was the thing that I had been seeking out, and I had finally found it with the support of friends and family. After my divorce, when I decided to begin dating again, I gravitated towards women. My friends were more than happy to set me up with girls they thought would be good matches, and I met some others online. But something was always nagging in the back of my mind. It took a while, but I realized that I couldn't belong to Jesus and continue to live in what he calls sin. After that, it was surprisingly easy to see same-sex relationships. I was blessed. A choice is not easy for everyone. That attraction will always be with me, but when the choice came down to hooking up with a hot chick or living a life foreign with Jesus, it was clear to me what my heart was truly seeking. I share all this because I want people to understand there is no point that you can go that's too far away from Christ. No place that you can go that he can't reach you, that he can't redeem you. One day when I was attending church here at High Point and we had communion, I was compelled to take the sign to the government something that I had not felt since I was a teenager. It was a major turning point for me and my relationship with God. At that point, I finally understood that I had truly come home. My journey to, away, and back to grace wasn't easy, but it shaped me into the person that I am today. God continues to change my day-to-day life in ways that can still sneak up and surprise me. Having gone from not touching a Bible since I was a teenager to rediscovering it as an adult, I appreciate the knowledge that much more as I'm learning. Praying and reading the Bible daily means slowing down, dedicating quiet time to contemplation and God, and I've discovered a keen interest in apologetics. I find enjoyment serving with friends for church events and in the community. Helping out at the food pantry last year with my small group was a true full-circle experience. Last time I had been in one, I was penniless and faithless. It's easy to seek out Jesus when your life is at its lowest. I try to remind myself often to be thankful for his presence now that I have turned back around. Through this church, I have made many positive connections, friends, the love of my life, and have numerous amazing influences that remind me that walking the path of a Christian on a daily basis is a struggle that we all share, and that 
When I need help, I can reach out both my prayers and my hands. People have asked me if I feel there's a single word that defines me, and they're generally quite surprised by the answer. I can say, it's not a little sister. My brother might prefer it be that way. It is an abuse victim. I'm glad to shed that. It's not divorcee, though anyone who has been divorced understands even when there's no fault, there's still shame. My one word, it's Christian. That's why it's important for me to be baptized as an adult and affirm my faith. My deepest identity is that I belong to Christ. I trust he has forgiven me, is redeeming me, and has given me a new family, a new life. We're going to pray for you again, okay? God, we lift up Anna Marie to you and pray that you would, begin to, you would continue to complete this work that you've started in her. We pray that you'd use all of these events in her past. Like you say in 2 Corinthians, that we go through many sorrows, partly because we're going to share in the sorrows of others. And I pray that you would use all, everything she's been through at some point to encourage, strengthen, and reach, and love other people. And so that she can be used um, by you to redeem others. We pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit on her and fill her. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing. So let's just take a few more minutes. We're going to sing one more worship song, and let's be celebrating and expressive. Worship his holy name. 
celebrate you as you should be celebrated. We want to find the pleasure that we so lack because we don't discipline ourselves to celebrate what is worth celebrating, deserves celebrating. Help us to be a people recognizing our need for memory, helping each other remember, coming back to remember what you have done and who you are, rather than being led astray by just the desires of our hearts and what's before our eyes. We want to be a people who get to live remembering you, that our, our minds would be fixed on the universe's greatest thought, 
because you're the universe's greatest being. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may he make you and us together a remembering and celebrating people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.